Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 2 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 2, Chapter 5, Section 2. You know, continued Marlowe, out of the shadow of the bookcase and nearly invisible in the depths of the armchair, the only time I saw him he had given me the impression of absolute rigidity, as though he had swallowed a poker. But it seems that he could collapse. I can hardly picture this to myself. I understand that he did collapse to a certain extent in his corner of the cab. The unexpected had crumpled him up. She regarded him perplexed, pitying, a little disillusioned, and nodded at him gravely. Yes, married. What she did not like was to see him smile in a manner far from encouraging to the devotion of a daughter. There was something unintentionally savage in it. Old de Barrel could not quite command his muscles as yet, but he had recovered command of his gentle voice. You were just saying that in this wide world there were only you and I to stick to each other. She was dimly aware of the scathing intention lurking in these soft low tones, in these words which appealed to her poignantly. She defended herself. Never, never for a single moment had she ceased to think of him. Neither did he cease to think of her, he said, with as much sinister emphasis as he was capable of. But Papa, she cried, I haven't been shut up like you. She didn't mind speaking of it because he was innocent. He hadn't been understood. It was a misfortune of the most cruel kind, but no more disgraceful than an illness, a maiming accident, or some other visitation of blind fate. I wish I had been too, but I was alone, out in the world, the horrid world, that very world which had used you so badly. And you couldn't go about in it without finding somebody to fall in love with, he said. A jealous rage affected his brain like the fumes of wine, rising from some secret depths of his being so long deprived of all emotions. The hollows at the corners of his lips became more pronounced in the puffy roundness of his cheeks. Images, visions, obsessed with particular force, men withdrawn from the sights and sounds of active life. And I did nothing but think of you, he exclaimed under his breath contemptuously. Think of you. You haunted me, I tell you. Flora said to herself that there was a being who loved her. Then we have been haunting each other, she declared with a pang of remorse. For indeed he had haunted her nearly out of the world into a final and irremediable desertion. Some day I should tell you. No, I don't think I can ever tell you. There was a time when I was mad, but what's the good? It's all over now. We shall forget all this. There shall be nothing to remind us. The barrel moved his shoulders. I should think you were mad to tie yourself to. How long is it since you are married? She answered, not long, that being the only answer she dared to make. Everything was so different from what she imagined it would be. He wanted to know why she had said nothing of it in any of her letters, in her last letter. She said, it was after. So recently, he wondered, couldn't you wait at least till I came out? You could have told me, asked me, consulted me. Let me see. She shook her head negatively, and he was appalled. He thought to himself, who can he be? Some miserable, silly youth without a penny, or perhaps some scoundrel? Without making any expressive movement, he wrung his loosely clasped hands till the joints cracked. He looked at her. 
She was pretty. Some low scoundrel who will cast her off. Some plausible vagabond. He couldn't wait, eh? Again she made a slight negative sign. Why not? What was the hurry? She cast down her eyes. It had to be. Yes, it was sudden, but it had to be. He leant towards her, his mouth open, his eyes wild with virtuous anger, but meeting the absolute candour of her raised glance, threw himself back into his corner again. So tremendously in love with each other, was that it? Couldn't let her father have his daughter all to himself, even for a day, after after such a separation? And you know, I never had anyone. I had no friends. What did I want with those people one meets in the city? The best of them are ready to cut your throat? Yes, businessmen, gentlemen, any sort of men and women, out of spite, or to get something. Oh, yes, they can talk fair enough if they think there's something to be got out of you. His voice was a mere breath, yet every word came to Flora as distinctly as if charged with all the moving power of passion. My girl, I looked at them making up at me, and I would say to myself, What do I care for all that? I am a businessman. I am the great Mr. de Barrel. Yes, yes, some of them twisted their mouths at it, but I was the great Mr. de Barrel, and I have my little girl. I wanted nobody, and I have never had anybody. A true emotion had unsealed his lips, but the words that came out of them were no louder than the murmur of a light wind. It died away. That's just it, said Flora de Barrel under her breath. Without removing her eyes from her, he took off his hat. It was a tall hat, the hat of the trial, the hat of the thumbnail sketches in the illustrated papers. One comes out in the same clothes, but seclusion counts. It is well known that lurid visions haunt secluded men, monks, hermits. Then why not prisoners? De Barrel, the convict, took off the silk hat of the financier de Barrel and deposited it on the front seat of the cab. Then he blew out his cheeks. He was red in the face. And then what happens? He began again in his contained voice. Here I am, overthrown, broken by envy, malice and all uncharitableness. I come out, and what do I find? I find that my girl Flora has gone and married some man or other, perhaps a fool. How do I know? Or perhaps, anyway, not good enough. Stop, Papa. A silly love affair as likely as not, he continued monotonously, his thin lips writhing between the ill-omened sunk corners. And a very suspicious thing it is, too, on the part of a loving daughter. She tried to interrupt him, but he went on till she actually clapped her hands on his mouth. He rolled his eyes a bit, but when she took her hand away, he remained silent. Wait, I must tell you. And first of all, Papa, understand this, for everything's in that. He is the most generous man in the world. He is. De Barrel, very still in his corner, uttered with an effort. You are in love with him. Papa, he came to me. I was thinking of you. I had no eyes for anybody. I could no longer bear to think of you. It was then that he came. Only then, at that time when when I was going to give up. She gazed into his faded blue eyes as if yearning to be understood, to be given encouragement, peace, a word of sympathy. He declared without animation, I would like to break his neck. She had the mental exclamation of the overburdened, Oh, my God, and watched him with frightened eyes. 
but he did not appear insane or in any other way formidable. This comforted her. The silence lasted for some little time. Then suddenly he asked, What's your name, then? For a moment, in the profound trouble of the task before her, she did not understand what the question meant. Then, her face faintly flushing, she whispered, Anthony. Her father, a red spot on each cheek, leant his head back wearily in the corner of the cab. Anthony. What is he? Where did he spring from? Papa, it was in the country, on a road. He groaned, on a road, and closed his eyes. It's too long to explain to you now. We shall have lots of time. There are things I could not tell you now, but some day, some day. For now, nothing can part us, nothing. We are safe as long as we live. Nothing can ever come between us. You are infatuated with the fellow, he remarked, without opening his eyes. And she said, I believe in him, in a low voice. You and I must believe in him. Who the devil is he? He's the brother of the lady, you know, Mrs. Fine, she knew mother, who was so kind to me. I was staying in the country, in a cottage, with Mr. and Mrs. Fine. It was there that we met. He came for a visit. He noticed me. I, well, we are married now. She was thankful that his eyes were shut. It made it easier to talk of the future she had arranged, which now was an unalterable thing. She did not enter on the path of confidences. That was impossible. She felt he would not understand her. She felt also that he suffered. Now and then a great anxiety gripped her heart with a mysterious sense of guilt, as though she had betrayed him into the hands of an enemy. With his eyes shut, he had an air of weary and pious meditation. She was a little afraid of it. Next moment a great pity for him filled her heart, and in the background there was remorse. His face twitched now and then, just perceptibly. He managed to keep his eyelids down till he heard that the husband was a sailor and that he, the father, was being taken straight on board ship, ready to sail away from this abominable world of treacheries and scorn and envies and lies, away, away, over the blue sea, the shore, the inaccessible, the uncontaminated and spacious refuge for wounded souls. Something like that. Not the very words, perhaps, but such was the general sense of her overwhelming argument, the argument of refuge. I don't think she gave a thought to material conditions, but as part of that argument set forth breathlessly, as if she were afraid that if she stopped for a moment she could never go on again, she mentioned that generosity of a stormy type which had come to her from the sea, had caught her up on the brink of unmentionable failure, had whirled her away in its first ardent gust and could be trusted now, implicitly trusted, to carry them both, side by side, into absolute safety. She believed it. She affirmed it. He understood thoroughly, at last, and at once the interior of that cab, of an aspect so pacific in the eyes of the people on the pavements, became the scene of a great agitation. The generosity of Roderick Anthony, the son of the poet, affected the ex-financier de Barrel in a manner which must have brought home to Flora de Barrel the extreme arduousness of the business of being a woman. Being a woman is a terribly difficult trade, since it consists principally of dealing with men. This man, the man inside the cab, cast off his stiff placidity and behaved like an animal. 
I don't mean it in an offensive sense. What he did was to give way to an instinctive panic, like some wild creature scared by the first touch of a net falling on its back. Old de Barrel began to struggle, lank and angular, against the empty air, as much of it as there was in the cab, with staring eyes and gasping mouth from which his daughter shrank as far as she could in the confined space. Stop the cab! Stop him, I tell you! Let me get out! were the strangled exclamations she heard. Why? What for? To do what? He would hear nothing. She cried to him, Papa! Papa! What do you want to do? And all she got from him was, Stop! I must get out! I want to think! I must get out to think! It was a mercy that he didn't attempt to open the door at once. He only stuck his head and shoulders out of the window, crying to the cabman. She saw the consequences, the cab stopping, a crowd collecting around a raving old gentleman, in this terrible business of being a woman so full of fine shades, of delicate perplexities and very small rewards, you can never know what rough work you may have to do at any moment. Without hesitation, Flora seized her father round the body and pulled back, being astonished at the ease with which she managed to make him drop into his seat again. She kept him there resolutely, with one hand pressed against his breast, and leaning across him, she, in her turn, put her head and shoulders out of the window. By then the cab had drawn up to the curbstone and was stopped. No, I've changed my mind. Go on, please, where you were told first. To the docks. She wondered at the steadiness of her own voice. She heard a grunt from the driver and the cab began to roll again. Only then she sank into her place, keeping a watchful eye on her companion. He was hardly anything more by this time. Except for a childhood's impression, he was just a man, almost a stranger. How was one to deal with him? And there was the other, too, also almost a stranger. The trade of being a woman was very difficult, too difficult. Flora closed her eyes, saying to herself, If I think too much about it, I shall go mad. And then, opening them, she asked her father if the prospect of living always with his daughter and being taken care of by her affection away from the world, which had no honour to give to his grey hairs, was such an awful prospect. Tell me, is it so bad as that? She put that question sadly, without bitterness. The famous, or notorious, de Barrel had lost his rigidity now. He was bent. Nothing more deplorably futile than a bent poker. He said nothing. She added gently, suppressing an uneasy, remorseful sigh. And it might have been worse. You might have found no one, no one in all this town, no one in all the world. Not even me. Poor Papa. She made a conscience-stricken movement towards him, thinking, Oh, I'm horrible, I'm horrible. And old de Barrel, scared, tired, bewildered by the extraordinary shocks of his liberation, swayed over and actually leant his head on her shoulder, as if sorrowing over his regained freedom. The movement by itself was touching. Flora supported him lightly, imagining that he was crying, and at the thought that had she smashed in a quarry that shoulder, together with some other of her bones, this grey and pitiful head would have had nowhere to rest, she too gave way to tears. They flowed quietly, easing her overstrained nerves. Suddenly he pushed her away from him, so that her head struck the side of the cab, pushing himself away too from her as if something had stung him. All the warmth went out of her emotion. The very last tears turned cold on her cheek. But their work was done. 
She had found courage, resolution, as women do, in a good cry. With his hand covering the upper part of his face, whether to conceal his eyes or to shut out an unbearable sight, he was stiffening up in his corner to his usual poker-like consistency. She regarded him in silence. His thin, obstinate lips moved. He uttered the name of the cousin, the man, you remember, who did not approve of the fines, and whom, rightly or wrongly, little fines suspected of interested motives in view of de Barrel having possibly put away some plunder somewhere before the smash. I may just as well tell you at once that I don't know anything more of him. But de Barrel was of the opinion, speaking in his low voice from under his hand, that this relation would have been only too glad to have secured his guidance. Of course, I could not come forward in my own name or person, but the advice of a man of my experience is as good as a fortune to anybody wishing to venture into finance. The same sort of thing can be done again. He shuffled his feet a little, let fall his hand, and, turning carefully towards his daughter, his puffy round cheeks, his round chin resting on his collar, he bent on her the faded, resentful gaze of his pale eyes, which were wet. The start is really only a matter of judicious advertising. There is no difficulty. And here you go, and... He turned his face away. After all, I am still de Barrel, the de Barrel. Didn't you remember that? Papa, said Flora, listen. It's you who must remember that there is no longer a de Barrel. He looked at her sideways anxiously. There is Mr. Smith, whom no harm, no trouble, no wicked lies of evil people can ever touch. Mr. Smith, he breathed out slowly, where does he belong to? There's not even a Miss Smith. There is your Flora. My Flora. You went and... I can't bear to think of it. It's horrible. Yes, it was horrible enough at times, she said with feeling, because somehow, obscurely, what this man said appealed to her as if it were her own thought clothed in an enigmatic emotion. I think with shame sometimes how I... No, not yet. I shall not tell you, at least not now. The cab turned into the gateway of the dock. Flora handed the tall hat to her father. Here, Papa, and please be good. I suppose you love me. If you don't, then I wonder who. He put the hat on, and, stiffened hard in his corner, kept a sidelong glance on his girl. Try to be nice for my sake. Think of the years I've been waiting for you. I do indeed want support, and peace, a little peace. She clasped his arm suddenly with both hands, pressing with all her might as if to crush the resistance she felt in him. I could not have peace if I did not have you with me. I won't let you go, not after all I went through. I won't. The nervous force of her grip frightened him a little. She laughed suddenly. It's absurd. It's as if I were asking you for a sacrifice. What am I afraid of? Where could you go? I mean now, today, tonight. You can't tell me. Have you thought of it? Well, I've been thinking of it for the last year, longer. I nearly went mad trying to find out. I believe I was mad for a time, or else I should never have thought... End of part two, chapter five, section two.